The world of business is often viewed with a skeptical eye. This is not so much a surprise when you look at the actions of business, ranging from selling dangerous products, deceiving customers, or even downright lying to the public. A recent poll by Roy Morgan in 2021 noted that the public viewed directors of public companies as some of the, having the lowest ethics and honesty ratings compared to most professions. And yet, we also see companies representing political and social causes. Gillette, for example, are creating advertisements to raise awareness around toxic masculinity. Organizations insist on policies for underrepresented members of the community, and others are also increasing their philanthropy and donating to worthy causes. And the question is why? Is this an attempt to virtue signal and appeal to the public interest? Or are these actually sincere attempts for business to do good? Further, is it the role of business to intervene on questions concerning the public good? Or is this the responsibility of government? We will be addressing these questions with our guest today, Carl Rhodes, discussing his book, Work Capitalism, How Corporate Morality is Sabotaging Democracy. Carl is the Dean of the Business School at the University of Technology of Sydney, the university that I attend, and he has held professorships at Swansea University, University of Leicester and Macquarie University. Prior to his academic career, Carl worked in professional and senior management positions in change management, organisational development for AGL Energy, Lendlease, Citibank and the Boston Consulting Group. Carl's combination of senior experience in academia and the private sector provides him with a unique perspective on how business and economic activity can and should contribute to society. We hope you enjoy this episode of Utopias Now. I really appreciate you coming on, Carl. Um, so the first question that we wanted to get into was uh, about your book. So your book is called Work Capitalism. Yeah. Um, what Shashwat and I are very interested in is narratives and how storytelling and narratives play a big role in how we think and how we conceive and perceive of the world around us. And so I wanted to get an understanding of how did you arrive at writing this book? And if you could tell us a bit more about the story and your motivations to write it. Yeah, I mean, I've spent a, a lot of uh, time as a, as a researcher and as an academic being interested in the relationship between business and society and the kind of political uh, role, role of business. And that's taken me into studying business ethics and corporate social responsibility, political corporate social responsibility, kind of, you know, workplace justice and a whole variety of things. I mean, what I, what I observed, not just me, many people observed, um, pretty much uh, coming up to the late 20 teens, coming up to 2000, it was around the time of the Trump presidency actually, that a lot of major corporations started to become interested in political causes that you would normally associate with the progressive left, right? So you, you, um, uh, you would have seen, you know, Gillette, as well, the biggest example would have been Nike um, supporting Colin Kaepernick and the uh, Dream Crazy campaign, campaign and the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, Gillette with its Best a Man Can Be campaign connecting to the Me Too movement and toxic masculinity. You know, that same year, I think the Business Roundtable in the US, that's the kind of group of chief executives released a statement about the purpose of uh, the corporation saying the purpose of the corporation is no longer just about the primacy of shareholders, but generally other, other um, uh, the broad range of stakeholders and this growth of stakeholder capitalism. So there was a, a shift happening at, around that time and still happening where normally you would associate large corporations with very conservative end of politics as they traditionally have been done and not exclusively, but mainly. And suddenly they were becoming interested in, in these, these new kinds of things. And I guess, and a few people had started to write about it, about I think when I first had the idea for the book, probably about maybe three years ago now, coming up to three years ago, I was interested in exploring why is this the case? And I was also interested because a lot of people who criticize woke capitalism criticize it because they don't like the political issues. They don't want, you know, uh, the issues of race and, and uh, inequality and, and gender inequality and masculinity and all sorts of things. They don't think that business has anything to do with that because they disagree with that politics. I don't disagree with that politics. That's my politics. I'm concerned of what happens when corporations take that on. Does it change in some way? Does it, does it, are they just, um, 
Is it hypocritical? Is it taking advantage of the politics for corporate purposes? So exploring that whole reason, and in a sense to do a progressive critique of woke capitalism as to the more conventional conservative critiques that, that are much more common that, that you would find. So that's how I got into it, um, if you like. To the extent that there's a, a narrative, I mean, I think it speaks to the, it's all part of the broader history of changes uh, that have happened within um, within large Western corporations. This is largely limited to multinational corporations emanating from Western liberal democracies. Um, uh, there is a, a the narrative that we're given is that there is a remoralization of the corporation, that corporations are not the villains who produce, uh, you know, who pollute the atmosphere and create economic inequality and have CEOs who are paid way too much, et cetera, et cetera. They're actually the heroes who come in and they're going to save the day from this new moral position. And I guess that's the kind of brand narrative, if you want to use that word, that's embedded in this. I mean, my purpose is to say, you know, that seems like a bit of a fairy story that maybe we need to ask a few more critical questions of. And the book is a way of asking those questions. Yeah, thank you for sharing, Carl. So just to summarize quickly, what I'm hearing you say is that when you saw businesses support a lot of political movements and get involved with them, um, you became curious about why this was happening. As you saw, the purpose of business started to shift from just creating stakeholder values to creating value for the larger society and narratives such as, you know, remoralization of businesses and businesses are not exploiting or destroying lives or people or the planet, but rather going to save the planet, right? This hero's um, story that's coming up. And so that's what kind of got you interested. And in this, you mentioned, you know, woke capitalism, the book that you wrote about this. Um, so I'm wondering if you could describe more specifically what exactly woke capitalism means and why you think that woke capitalism is a threat to democracy? Yeah, I mean, those, those are the fundamental questions of the book. I mean, so woke capitalism uh, uh, is this contemporary phenomenon where corporations, not just corporations, but also chief executives and there's a growth of chief CEO activism, but also billionaires publicly and financially supporting these political causes that you would associate with the, with the progressive left. So I mentioned some of them, you know, the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, uh, same-sex marriage. That was an early example when uh, Alan Joyce from Qantas here in Australia um, uh, was, a, was part of that debate. Climate activism is uh, one of the, the main ones, but also animal rights. And so these things that were once divisive, um, I suddenly, you know, big businesses behind them um, uh, and part of stakeholders. So this is kind of what, what woke capitalism capitalism is if you're a supporter of this and people don't when people use the word woke it's usually used as a, as a criticism I can talk about the history of that word later but um, uh, but people who who support stakeholder capitalism say that if this is done authentically it's a very desirable thing uh, you know organizations have power and reach they can get things done and they can do this and, and it can uh, make the world a better place and business can be a, a force for good if you like there are other people who criticize woke capitalism, saying that it's just hypocritical, people are kind of taking advantage, or it's a, it's a kind of tainted, tainted form of, of uh, capitalism. I mean, I take a different position, and I, and I think looking at it in the broader context of politics and democracy, you know, to your question, Shesh, is the tradition of, of liberal democracy is one where you have a division between private interests, private economic interests that are pursued either by individuals or by businesses who are owned by, by private people, either directly or with big businesses generally through, through uh, owned by shareholders. And those businesses have a fiduciary responsibility for the owners of the business. They have to, they have to meet those needs. And then you have public organizations, um, uh, uh, and particularly government and the institutions of democracy who are responsible for managing public uh, interests. So you have the private interest of the corporation and the public interest of government. My concern with woke capitalism is that what is 
not necessarily that everything that corporations do under the name of politics is bad in some way. It's clearly that's not the case. But if what does it do to the system of democracy when corporations beholden to private interest start getting involved in public matters? So take, for example, very recently, it was announced that Elon Musk, the richest man in the world, bought, I think, 9.2% of yeah, Twitter. Twitter. Yes. Yeah making him uh, arguably uh, the largest uh, shareholder. And he then, I mean, he's prone to making fairly outlandish and unhinged statements, if you don't mind me saying so. Um, and he goes on to Twitter saying that he, he's gonna, he wants to change all of the, the rules that Twitter uses in terms of governing free speech. And depends whether that means governing free speech or preventing hate speech. And it's kind of like, well, that's fine, Elon. But you're just one person. You're a single citizen, the same as I am, and the same uh, as you are, and the same as you are, Xavier. Why should one person have a greater say in the politics of democracy just because they're rich? Because that's not democracy. That's a lot more like the kind of feudalism that democracy replaced. So while we can look at individual instances of what people might do, and it might be seen to, to be a positive thing and could well be, when we look at the whole system, we looking at it more broadly, it seems really dangerous because it's almost as if we go back to this kind of plutocratic system, you know, the, the rule by the rich, as opposed to the democratic system, the rule, rule by the demos, demos, you know, coming from the Greek meaning people. And so I think we need to look at this broader political imagination in order to assess these problems. Otherwise, we can head down a, a route that is... Uh, a very slippery slope, perhaps one that we are we are already on. Mm. Yeah, I think there's a lot there. And if I was to summarize that, Carl, if you don't mind me and let me know if I've misunderstood this, but it seems like ultimately your position is, is that there are private interests that are blending together with the public good. Mm -hmm. And those that wield great influence or have a great amount of wealth are having a much greater impact or influence on uh, total the total political sphere as compared to an everyday citizen like yourself or myself or Shashwat. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, uh, here in Australia, you may have seen a little while ago, maybe a month or two ago, um, Mike Cannon-Brooks was part of a bit, Mike Cannon-Brooks, who's the chief executive of Atlassian, uh, one of Australia's richest people and one of the world's richest people. Um, was involved in a bid to take over a company called AGL. AGL is one of the uh, largest uh, energy companies in Australia. Now, you may know that Australia has come under a lot of criticism for its fairly, uh, particularly the current government, for its fairly woeful approach to climate change and not backing kind of, you know, 2030 zero emissions targets and and you know, um, for a long time, being involved in climate denialism, less so now, but still, you know, it, it's a pretty sad history. If you were following COP26 uh, late last year, you would have seen lots of headlines about about Australia being somewhat a pariah in the climate change. So our government, in my view, has let us down um, as far as this this is concerned. So Mike Cannon Brooks says, I, says it's part of this bid to take over the energy company, and he's basically saying. He wants to massively bring forward the company's targets in terms of closing down coal plants and, and uh, emissions and so forth. And bear in mind, even though he's you know, a super rich guy, he, this is his politics. I mean, he's been talking about this for a long time um, and he's intervening where government uh, has failed. And in a sense, as I said before, it's hard to kind of criticize. I mean, obviously he would have done this because it would have been made good business sense as well, but, but you know, he's making this intervention. And so criticizing work capitalism isn't about saying that individual business owners are evil people who, you know, you ever play the game Monopoly and that guy money bags in the middle, the big fat guy with the hat. I mean, it's not saying that, you know, these kind of stereotypes are in place, but the problem is if you look at this example is what's going on in Australia that, Climate, right? The biggest problem the, the world faces, or certainly one of the top three, right? Big problems the world faces. Does a country like Australia have to rely on the voluntary actions of the ultra rich 
to deal with a fundamentally socio-political problem emerging from what's happening in the environment. And that seems, again, you know, not to criticize uh, Canon Brooks, but to criticize the fact that we're now in a system where we have to rely on rich people doing us favors instead of having a democratic system where collectively as a, as a citizenry, as a people, um, uh, we can deal with these big issues. Meanwhile, politicians are more interested in, you know, getting photographed, uh, looking like members of the working class to try and get some cheap votes rather than dealing with the real problems. You want to so go, Shash? Yes, so just to... <laughs> I'm very curious about this whole divide that you presented between private and public, right? Where private business owners have a fiduciary duty to serve the stakeholders' values and public institutions are doing it for the people, for the democracy. But like you just mentioned, even people in the government and public institutions are ultimately people and they are still acting out of self-interest. So my question is, why do you see this as a problem where like, an ultra rich person is doing something to to like save the world because a lot of times you know there's this narrative presented that you know when you're poor you can't make any change but maybe like if you work hard you become rich then you can actually go and make some change but you're criticizing that and i'm curious to know what what is making you say this the, the criticism is because i mean it's fine you know so i look at what mike cannon brooks is doing and i really think australia needs to and the world needs to take greater action on climate so it's like great this rich person's doing something i agree with but what happens when someone who's super wealthy does something that you fundamentally don't agree with um again if you look at an australian example what if it's clive palmer wanting to you know do, do different things what if if someone wanted to support um increasing uh, coal mining and uh, diverting water supplies to, to, to coal mines. It's a question, I mean, so it's not, just, it's not just a question of analyzing the decision and whether one agrees with it, but what's the system in place? Now, of course, that's not to say that politicians are perfect. They are far from it. I mean, the question of self-interest, I mean, this is, a, this is an interesting thing too. I mean, there's a lot of talk about self-interest in terms of business, in terms of government, and a lot of terms of, about how kind of rational self-interest will motivate people. And it, it does motivate people in many different ways. But it's easy to forget that that's not the only thing that's motivating. We can equally as human beings and ethically be motivated by care for other people, by wanting to do good, to other people by meeting other other people's needs and to some extent individuals can come into a conflict between self-interest and care but to assume that self-interest is the sole motivator of humanity which is often built into a kind of rational economic business perspective it disavows the whole idea of ethics to the extent at least in my view that ethics is grounded in care in generosity in, in uh, responding to the needs and demands of others. So to, to just to talk more generally about ethics. So say, for example, you are walking along um, uh, a riverbed. So you're on this path walking around along a river, riverbed and you see a toddler walks past you and falls in the river and starts to drown. I would suggest that you're most likely, without thinking, gonna jump in and save that kid, right? Is that self-interest motivating you to do that? What's in it for you? You might get swept away and hurt yourself. So within us, I mean, there is a kind of, I said I wouldn't get too theoretical, but um, in the words of the sociologist Sigmund Bauman, within each of us is a kind of moral impulse, an impulse and a desire to do things for other people. And the modern world tries to squash that out of us a lot of ways, as we're supposed to just think about ourselves. And, and so part of this is about resurrecting that. I mean, in terms of politics, yeah, democracy is not a, a perfect system in terms of its institutions. And I think it's worth looking at democracy, not as a, you know, just about voting for people and so forth, but and not just about a system that's perfect because it never is. I mean, democracy is like a horizon. And imagine if you, you walk towards the horizon, you don't walk towards the horizon with imagining that you're going to arrive there sometimes. It's motivating because it provides direction. And a belief in democracy, a belief in community, and a belief in, in 
the possibility that human beings can care about things that's not just themselves is what undermines democracy, not just as a political system, but as a way of thinking and as a way of and as a way of life. I, I've gone on a, on a bit of a rant there. I don't know if I'm. Does that make sense to you guys? As you know, yeah. This is no, an intergenerational discussion here to some extent. Yes. Um, I mean, I'll just pick out a few words. So, horizon, intergenerational. Um, I mean, there's uh, so much that you said that resonates quite deeply with us, and it's because of a foundation of our podcast, Paul. And I don't know, uh, Carl. Sorry, I don't know if this is. Um, I don't know if this is a by fate, but a, a very big principle is this idea of the horizon because our podcast name is Utopias Now. And one of the quotes that we reference quite often is by this writer called Eduardo Galinio. And he says, what is the point of utopia? It is to walk towards the horizon. And it's with the intention of not, not actually getting there, but moving forward, something along those lines. Okay. Um, and, uh, and I think there's a few interesting things that you picked up there. Um, I know Shashwood's very keen on the idea of the selfish gene by Richard Dawkins. And I know there's some other theories I'd like to chuck in there, like veneer theory, veneer theory um, by, uh, by uh, uh, Hobbes, um, where he says that society is a thin veneer where if you remove laws and you remove away, uh, you remove the uh, impediments that stop people from doing uh, bad, that everyone will actually be bad. And contrasting that with Rousseau's theory that, everyone is intrinsically good in a society that uh, that corrupts us all but sasha did you want to jump in and 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 yeah give for your sure thoughts? So, uh, along the same lines i wanted to question like you said right um there are some people not everyone acts out of self-interest let's say, let's say you see someone um you know dying in a river like our instinct will be to jump in and save them but my question is isn't that also somewhere selfish because by doing so, we may feel good about doing so. It could be, so, but I think the, the jumping in the river example, I mean, it's a bit hypothetical, but I would suggest that when you do this jumping in the river, you don't think at all. You are responding purely based on affect, based on feeling, based on impulse. It's not a rational kind of thing. And in many ways, caring for other people, you know, I mean, if you uh, agree with the idea that the basics of ethics is love. Love is not rational. I mean, you know, when you love somebody, you don't start calculating your advantage. You don't start thinking what's in it for me. I mean, it's it's focused on others. And it's a question of how that kind of, how that works. And that's not just about, you know, members of your family or individuals, but the notion of being connected to a community in this way that's driven by feeling, you know, we become so obsessed with 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 uh, rationality. I mean, coming back to Xavier's point, and it's interesting you mentioned Hobbes and Rousseau, and that whole kind of idea of the social contract, which kind of you know emerges through that particular period of of, of philosophy. I back Rousseau before Hobbes, by the way, in my my personal view. Notwithstanding, people can do some things that would render our lives what does he call it short, nasty, and brutish. Um, and people are capable, people are clearly capable of doing some very evil things, you know, I mean, look at some of the stories coming out of Ukraine at the moment of, uh, you know, people being murdered on the streets and soldiers uh, raping civilian women, I mean, it's just awful, awful, and that's not new in the history of the world, people are capable of, of, of uh, doing some terrible things, but people are also capable of of, uh, of not doing those things and being more awake to, uh, as I say, awake to their own kind of eth ethicality and awake to the fact that uh, we're nothing without other people. What would you know? I mean, one question I ask students when I teach business ethics is: Imagine if you are sitting in a room, in a corner of a room, with the door closed probably hard to imagine from your generation. You have no mobile phone with you um, and you have no way of um, contacting anybody else. You're just there by yourself. In that moment, is it possible for you to be ethical? Well, no, because I would say no, because there's nothing you can, to be ethical is to do something for somebody else. And if you're not able to, to somehow be with other people or to respond to them in any way or to communicate with other people 
you know, you might be able to sit on your own and remember things you've done in the past and have a warm, somewhat pathetic glow of self-righteousness. That's possible when you're by yourself. But to do something ethical, um, to the extent that it's responding um, uh, to the needs of others, you can't do that by yourself. So ethics is fundamentally interpersonal, fundamentally social, in, in my view. The thing with business, too, is, I mean, business is a way of, of organizing um, our lives and a way of, of uh, distributing resources. So, I mean, although I kind of have these criticisms of work capitalism, I'm not criticizing commerce uh, more generally, because how else do we go about kind of, you know, sharing the world's goods? I mean, one way of doing it is war. You just take over and take the stuff you want. We've seen examples of that before. So in many ways, commerce is an alternative um, to war, an alternative to, to the violence of colonialism that, that came before it. So it's not, but at the same time, the way that capitalism has developed these days, the, the, one of the larger problems is that it's produced massive inequalities. It's produced inequalities, you know, along geopolitical lines, it's created inequalities along racial lines, along gendered lines, uh, along class lines. And again, if you look at coming, I'm going to try and get back on topic now, if you come back to woke capitalism, woke capitalism generally tends to support social causes, which have largely already been settled in public debate. You know, um, as I say, these days, climate change, uh, anti-racism and so forth. What it doesn't deal with is fundamental economic problems that society faces. You don't see woke capitalism, woke capitalists wanting to um, prevent the, the spread of corporate tax evasion. You don't see them wanting to reduce the extraordinary and obscene levels of CEO pay that you see in organizations. You don't see, you know, a, a support for universal basic income or increasing the minimum wage or, or putting in a maximum wage uh, for people, progressive taxation and so forth and so on trade union organization is not a woke capitalist view. Look at what's been happening with Amazon in the United States, who recently, part of uh, I think in New York, did uh, unionize, but the massive fight against worker organization. So although woke capitalism takes on some of the traditional social uh, political perspectives of the left, it's very much not taking on the more fundamental economic ones. And this, again, is part of how businesses are shaping the more general political environment in a way that suits their interests, as opposed to the more um, democratic focus, um, utopian as it may be. And, and I, that was a great connection, by the way, that I hadn't realized um, uh, that I still don't think it's worth forgetting the, the promise of, uh, of, de of democracy without being... I mean, again, with utopianism, it's an interesting thing. I mean, there's, there's, two, there's two ways, I think, of thinking of utopianism. And one is to think that the utopia is an actual real thing that you can achieve and you can actually get there. This usually, if you look at the history of, of uh, world politics, people who believe this, it usually leads to various forms of fairly repressive dictatorships that think they can install the real utopia. But that doesn't mean forgetting a belief in utopianism more generally, which is about striving for progress, striving to make things better, and not giving up, uh, not giving up on hope. And I think that kind of narrative, coming back to your term before, is, is one that we need to really uh, hang on to. And I think absolutely a lot here, but I think also I think that what that your generation really needs to hang on to, because I got to be honest, you know, my generation has has failed. Um, uh, and it's a question of what will be the new political imagination, what will be the new democratic utopia that, that your generation can um, uh, can bring through. Yeah. Um, there was a lot there, there's a lot there, Carl, and I'm very, very tempted to stay on the ethics point because as Shashwat knows, ethics is a, is a part-time hobby for me. Um, but just covering some of your points in terms of in you know, all the ethical uh, ethical uh, uh, scenarios that you laid out, I think one was pretty analogous to Peter Singer's pond scenario. 
Um, but in terms of ethics, you were talking about how um, ethics is intrinsically linked to people and we can't be ethical if we're in a room by ourselves because there's no impact that we can potentially have on anyone else because there's no one there. Um, and uh, for this reason, when we're considering, uh, when we're considering uh, work capitalism in a sense, it's to do with um, the ethics and caring of other people because ultimately if we are appealing to notions of uh, to public good, such as supporting such as supporting social causes, but ultimately in the back door not doing so, what ends up happening is that we are we are not providing the support or the as much support as needed to help with those uh, social inequities or those social issues such as you know LGBTQI rights or things of that sort. Um, and touching on this, Carl, I'm tempted to play a little game where we sort of try to pick apart the nuance of of work capitalism by looking at a few examples. Mm-hmm. Um, are you, are you uh, just before that? Yes, you want to go, Shasha? Yeah, the reason anything? why I think it's important to get to the nuance is because, you know, as you were speaking, I'm like, mm, isn't that woke? Isn't as in like, oh, yeah, like I'm all going to be about people. And as a corporation, all I'm going to display is like, I'm very ethical and I'm all about the people and I'm very caring about people. Like, what is the point where it goes from being awake, as you said, to woke, right? So I think like playing this game where Xavier presents some examples will help us like get to the nuance of where that sort of shifts from being awake to woke. Yep, definitely. Yes, we can call it woke or nope. For, 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 <laughs> as as a okay. as a way to conceive of it, but okay. So the first example, um, and sticking on point with Russia, um, uh, this is seen in also in academia, which I've been very surprised by, but also mainly in corporations where corporations have been. It's a, basically a mass exodus, a mass a mass withdrawal of corporations from Russia, mm-hmm. and there has been some, uh, I guess, inertia or friction with certain companies. I think McDonald's was unsure at one point, or perhaps uh, I think a few oil companies or energy companies. I'm, I'm not too sure, but uh, there's just basically the sentiment that if your if your company is based in in Russia, you're in some sense uh, 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 it's an implicit support of the actions of the Russian government or the mm-hmm. alleged actions. I don't know. It doesn't look like it's alleged at this point, but um, yeah, what would you categorize that? Is that uh, something that would you consider work capitalism or is it nope? I would say, I mean, it's very complicated, complex question. Um, I, so before coming down to, you know, a decision on one side or the other. Yeah, I mean, companies like McDonald's was one of the latest company, the latter companies. And when they pulled out, I mean, partially it was because there was a there was a, a growing backlash and a growing worry about consumer boycott in the West, in Western Europe and the United States. And, there were, you know, uh, boycott McDonald's hashtag was was trending on Twitter. Um, so they they kind of pulled out subject to that kind of uh, public pressure. At the same time, I mean, you know, to the extent that they would have been able to continue business very effectively. So if you look at it from an economic point of view for a company like McDonald's, where Russia would have been a very small portion of its global sales, did they pull out because they wanted to support um, Ukrainian resistance? Or did they pull out because they were afraid that if they stayed there, the small percentage of revenues that they get in Russia might jeopardize the much larger percentage of revenues that they get elsewhere. I don't know the inner workings of McDonald's, so I can't answer that, but I would feel certain that any corporation would have would have looked at the um, economic uh, calculations of that. Coca-Cola was the same in terms of one of the later pulls out. But ethically, this gets even more complicated. Look, if people in Russia don't eat McDonald's, you know, maybe they'll be healthier. I don't know. Maybe it's not necessarily a, a bad thing, right? But what if it's a pharmaceutical company that pulls out um, uh, as part of the economic sanctions, and then someone uh, suffering from, I don't know, diabetes can't get hold of insulin because the, the company has, has withdrawn and then becomes uh, sick and dies. So on the one hand, you see a corporation supporting economic sanctions in a country but and what if that person who dies is a anti-putin resistance fighter in russia 
is that where does that stand ethically now yeah that, i'm not going to give you any glib answers to that because that's an awfully complex problem and the whole thing about kind of economic warfare through sanctions you know Putin and and you know his uh, and the people around him who are ultimately responsible for making the decision to go to war, they're not suffering but from this. It's your everyday uh, Russian citizen who who mm. perhaps can't get some of the things that they need, and and effectively these sanctions have engineered a financial crisis in Russia yeah. for individual people to suffer. And again, that's a complex. I mean. You know the ethics of war and the idea of just war is is so complex but i think in mcdonald's case coming back to your original questions i would feel fairly certain that uh they would have calculated the implications of, for their own commercial operations before making the decision and in a sense you know and would and responded to public pressure from the west mm, definitely um the next example i have or actually perhaps just to go back to that example and just wrap up very quickly, I think as well, going back to your previous point is that work capitalism is in a sense tied uh, specifically to maybe more social political issues as opposed to more broader economic critiques of a system, such as supporting uh, uh, those that are in poverty or supporting unionized workers. Um, and so given that this is related to, I guess, a, a much broader political problem, such as uh, warfare, perhaps this that this maybe doesn't fall in that category per se, but perhaps it's uh, companies like McDonald's are invoking a sort of, uh, you know, uh, to protect from further backlash, let's just pull out. And so in some sense, that is a sort of a, uh, a wokeness or maybe just a, a yeah. What yeah. would you would you say that's? I think I mean, it's responding to changes in public sentiment. I mean, I'm not aware that and it's interesting that this happened in Ukraine. I don't believe companies like this uh, have pulled out of other war zones in the past. So I think it is part of a contemporary kind of woke capitalist, uh, sure. woke capitalist sure. uh, thing okay. going on in, in some way. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Okay, great. Um, Shash, did you want to jump in with an example or did you want me to go next with the... Perfect. So uh, this is more of an Australian-related uh, Australian related, uh, example. So during the bushfire, the big bushfire season 2019, uh, there was a coordinated effort by the big four banks. I don't know if this was publicly coordinated, but it was ostensibly they all happened to donate the exact amount of money at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, all, I think Westpac, um, ANZ, all the big Australian banks donated about a million dollars to bushfire funds. Um, and I was in my ethics class speaking with the ethics professor about this. And um, we posed the question, you know, this seems to be a, a strange uh, coincidence that they all donated a, a very similar amounts within the same period of time. And perhaps obviously that's because uh, the, the bushfires are quite uh, relevant at the time. But to me, this seems like it's a sort of, uh, uh, work capitalism in the sense that big banks such as investment banks as well as uh, big banks in Australia and internationally are the largest supporters of fossil fuel companies by um, by allowing the flow of funds through their banks and so in this sense to me it seems like a sort of wokeness but I wanted to get your thoughts on this yeah I mean you know if your house was burnt down and some of that money helped you rebuild it you're gonna you're gonna be kind of happy with that right but on the other hand, a million dollars is chump change to a major bank. I happen to know that the highest paid bank CEO in uh, Australia gets paid $6 million per year. So that's just one year, six times what the, uh, what the bank gave to this course. So that would suggest that it's not, you know, while it is a value for what it is, um, uh, and, and more likely or not would have been used well, it's not a significant, uh, amount of money but you still do i mean even if you look at the floods that have been happening in in uh in lismore um uh you know ceos have have uh have you know come and helped out there as well and that that's good um but it is i mean you know with that donation comes you know a healthy uh dose of uh dose of uh pr um uh, as well so it's again it's a it's kind of a muddy thing but you know, a million dollars isn't isn't that much money. I mean, it's a lot of money if 
and gave you personally a million dollars, but in the context of of the finances of a, a major financial institution, it's uh, it's not not at all. Mm. But how about can I can I can I turn the tables on this yes, and, of course. And, and give you a woke or no question? And, and this is a very recent one that just came to light uh, over the last couple of days, and it's got to do with um, the Grand Prix. And um, so the team McLaren, I don't know if you follow the Grand Prix, I don't, but you know, uh, this came to my attention. The Grand Prix is, uh, the McLaren team is sponsored by a company called Smartsheet, okay? Um, and where normally, when you see the McLaren car going down the, the track, you'd see Smartsheet, the company, emblazoned on it. And they figured that given the, the, uh, the, how, the, how widespread this, this sport is and how many viewers it has, it's worth about a million bucks um, in advertising. Now, Smartsheet have decided this upcoming Grand Prix that they're going to hand over the... Um, the uh, the, the uh, signage on the car. They're not going to put Smartsheet. They're handing it over to a not-profit organization called Deadly Science. Now, Deadly Science is an organization that works. It's an indigenous organ, not-for-profit organization that works with indigenous kids in remote communities, encouraging them to pu uh, pursue pursue STEM careers, careers in 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 science, technology, engineering, and so forth. Um, by providing a range of resources, mentoring, books, and so forth. So this company has said, you can have this. And, you know, for, for a not-for-profit organization, that's like pretty incredible advertising. So Smart Street, woke or nope? It's not easy. So you're saying... Is it woke or nope that they put a nonprofit um, sponsorship on on the car on the McLaren? And they did it for free. Are they doing it because of a, a genuine interest in uh, indigenous education, or are they doing because it might make them look good to be supporting uh, an indigenous not-for-profit? I mean, just my instinctual response is after this conversation that. It is, it seems like a social facade, like a greenwashing kind of thing, but mm. in the context of like nonprofits doing work for indigenous communities all for free and marketing that, like telling that to the world, like, oh, look what we're doing. Like that just straight up instinctually is bringing up some red flags for me that oh, I want to be a little bit more skeptical about their true intentions and what, what's going on here. Yeah, but if you talk to... Um... Uh, the person who runs Deadly Science is an indigenous um, Camilleroy man called Corey Tut. He thinks it's fantastic. He's saying this is the best thing that's ever happened to us because it means that we, we're going to be able to pursue our work better and there's going to be indigenous kids who will get opportunities they otherwise wouldn't have. So he thinks yes. it's pretty good. It seems like there's a bit of an ethical asymmetry. And what I mean by that is that the benefits of being sponsored for the organization far away the, uh, or uh, have a huge impact on their everyday operations. Uh, and likewise, uh, with the uh, Grand Prix, the, the car, the company that's uh, uh, sponsoring, uh, they get a huge kickback as well. But in terms of uh, in terms of the asymmetry, it seems like one is perhaps for ulterior motives, and the other is just gaining based on those ulterior motives. Yeah, um, I would say that based on what we've discussed, that uh, what capitalism in a sense is uh, one of the one of the uh, fundamental components is supporting social causes, and. I think from my understanding, STEM careers has been pushed very heavily, has been heavily backed across mm. the world. Uh, and as well as issues related to indigenous peoples are also backed. And so in those two senses, those are social issues, which could fall under the umbrella of work capitalism. Um, but uh, perhaps there's a bit of a gray area as to, uh, well, an ethic, great ethical question, which is what is the right thing to do here? Uh, whether whether to accept those donations because it will benefit the organization mm. or to reject it based because it's purely uh, performative. But the other thing, coming back to the kind of thesis I was putting forward before, if we regard education as a basic human right, why is it 
that these kids in remote communities don't have books? Why is it that there's not the public provision of education of this level and that instead we have to rely on this corporate not-for-profit kind of uh, um, uh, partnership model to do that? So yeah. that's a bigger question, political question. Yes. That, that, that I think we always need to need to ask, what is our collective role as a community as you yes. know, through representative government in, in liberal democracy to achieve these? So that's another kind of question as well yeah. that's not and addressed. And so perhaps this is a good opportunity to close up this uh, fun edition of Woke or Nope. I'm sure there'll <laughs> be many others. Um, but um, so I wanted to tie this back to the and summarize and tie it back to our earlier point that we we're making at the start of the podcast and i think we can maybe get more on track here with regards to uh one of the questions which is where should the power lie as to uh the interest of the public versus the private sector but before that it seems like to me and correct me if i'm wrong carl my understanding is that um, when we're looking at individuals like canon brooks or huge wealthy people uh like elon musk that have huge influence it is uh, and asking, you know, even if it, their actions are serving the public good, it is a matter of remaining logically consistent with the principles of democracy, which is every vote counts and having an unduly amount of influence on a large amount of people, perhaps it goes against the principles of democracy. And this then asks us, th this then asks the question of um, what do we do about this, about these uh, blending together of public good and private interests, whether they should still remain separate. I, I suppose that question leads to another question of is democracy the best sort of form of political uh, organization? Um, uh, and then another question is, um, if democracy is the best uh, form of organization, then um, obviously, should, should we make it much more clear that we separate these two areas of public and private interests, instead of having these very weird blended areas where non-for-profits have to do a bulk of the work for the governments that are not investing in the education of Indigenous people in STEM, for example. Um, would you say that that's sort of a, a I, I asked questions within the summary, so it's a bit, a bit misleading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah. Did you want to go Shash quickly? So just to summarize, I think what Xavier is trying to get at is that we've discussed the problems and what's been happening. But now if we were to look into the future, into the horizon, what's the ideal? What's the utopian direction? And in the sense of like progress, like progressing towards a better thing rather than saying that, oh, we know one, like the final answer and we're going to be dictators. So I think what would your utopia look like, Carl, in terms of all the things that we've been speaking about that Xavier just mentioned? Yeah, I mean... Just before I get to that question, I think the way you've kind of uh, been phrasing this, where you say, what should we do? The question is, who is the we? And I presume you don't mean the three of us being some kind of, you know, uh, conspiratorial force in world politics, right? There's another sense of we. And even the fact that you can conceive of a we in your language, you're already embracing a, dem a democratic ideal because you imagine there is some sense of we, there is some sense of collective, there's some sense of community who should have sovereignty, political sovereignty over what goes on, at least within within uh, particular nations. So I think you're kind of answering your own question by your own inadvertent use of, of, of this particular language. And so when we say about the utopia, I think it's always important not to have, you know, a super concrete utopia where you define everything, because the only way you're going to achieve that is through is through uh, some kind of uh, dictatorship where you put everything in place that you want. But I think the utopia is a utopia where, where, where there is a set of democratic values, where we're pursuing um, equality, um, where we're pursuing freedom, not in the sense of individual freedom and me being able to do anything what I, that I like, but more communal freedom, pursuing a better social contract coming to the discussion before um uh, which does is not uh, about you know unequal distribution of wealth not about unequal distribution of education not about unequal distribution of of rights um uh, which is the the way uh the world is going so the utopia is a utopia for me of um of equality across all grounds and how how can that that be pursued and maintained um uh, in a way that that doesn't allow 
minority interests, whether they be corporate, political. I mean, in the past, if you look at, you know, much of history, you know, it's, it's aristocracies and monarchies that rule the world where power was handed down by a combination of wealth and birthright. But that's not dissimilar to the situation that woke capitalism takes us in, um, in terms of wealth. Or even if you look at when Donald Trump was the, the, the president of the United States, I mean, one of the darker periods of American history. Um, uh, you know, this was an, a, a direct attempt uh, to move back to, to this kind of system. It was his family who were brought into political uh, power his somewhat uh, ham-fisted and ineffective attempt um, uh, at, at kind of overthrow and takeover of uh, Capitol Hill and a way of overthrowing the basic institutions of democracy. Because democracy isn't just about voting people in, into power, it's also about the social institutions around that. And that's, you know, the rule of law, the free media, I would also say the role of, of universities. And so having this kind of balanced approach that that looks at progress towards equality is the direction of a utopia um, uh, that I would favor, but certainly not a utopia, which is not like a blueprint utopia, which says what everything should be like, because we're destined to Stalinism if we produce uh, that kind of five-year plan. Thank you so much for sharing, Carl. I really like that you defined we and sort of brought it to our own point as, as we're like sort of thinking about a greater collective and a democracy. But if I was to change the question or like the context of the we just a little bit more and go from this big abstract or like ideal force of society as we to, to us right now in this room, especially I guess me and Xavier being business students just about to graduate college going into the business world, which I know a lot of our listeners also are in the same shoes. Mm. Um, I'm wondering what would you tell us in terms of how to perhaps not be a woke capitalist or how can we do business in a way which is ethical and awake, but not woke and yeah. sort of this facade? How can we bring it back to students? Yeah, I mean, on an individual level, like for you guys, I mean, on the one hand, don't, if you get two job offers and one's for a company that's, you know, a massive polluter and one's uh, for a company that's trying to legitimately align with, the, with the, the movement worldwide to reduce emissions and the polluter is offering you 50% more money than the other one, think carefully about what choice you make in that situation. So the main thing you can do is decide who it is that you want to work for and also if you, I mean, there are many organizations that get associated with wokeness, but also and known widely for having fairly toxic, bullying, awful workplace cultures. So if you get in, in, involved in a, in a corporation where the workplace culture is, is, um, is of that nature, look for opportunities to get out um, and make sure you also work for a company that does align with your own values and that you feel comfortable. I think that is is uh, crucially important. But don't get caught up in the myth, coming back to narratives, the myth is a form of narrative, don't get caught up in the myth that it's up to corporations to solve all of the world's problems. Corporations are definitely a part of it, business is, is a part of it, but it's a much more general thing. So, you know, don't drink the Kool-Aid on that, uh, to use, an, uh, to use a, a particular metaphor. And, but also, you know, I mean, as much as you will be the employee of a corporation, you will also be a citizen of the, the, the nation in which you, you live. And, and sometimes those things are, uh, are in contrast. And when you're at work, don't forget that you are also, as well as being an employee, as well as being a consumer, maybe at some point in your life, if not now, as well as being a, a shareholder, you're also a citizen. And that it's your rights as a citizen that fundamentally define your freedoms, not, not the other thing. And that's really important to remember the importance of citizen importance of citizenship. So there's lots of things I think we can do as just individuals regularly running, doing our own lives, just in terms of how we behave um, and how we interact and the individual choices uh, that we make. So be careful of your choices because you know it's interesting. We can always think of ourselves as individuals in control of who we are. 
But the life we live, the things we do, the people we interact with, those things shape us, often in ways that we don't know it's happening at the time. Um, so make the right choices to make sure that you're going to do something that you want to do, something that you can look back on uh, in later life and feel proud of. And, you know, spending loads of time in the office and uh, making lots of money is probably not something that you would look back on and feel proud of. There's got to be something more important, more important than that. Yeah, absolutely, Carl. So, and I think uh, there's a quite, I forget uh, exactly how it's phrased, but it's something along the lines of every action is almost a political action. Hmm. Um, whether that's the the products that you purchase, the businesses that you support, the companies that you work for, yeah. and the positions that you hold, obviously, which are the most maybe explicitly clear positions. And so um, what I'm hearing from you is that for future business leaders or even just employees of other companies, whether you work at a pharma company, whether you work at a, you know, all sorts of other companies, it's important to ensure that alignment of the personal values um, and vote with your time, I suppose, by choosing the organization you'd like to dedicate your hours to. I think there's 80,000 hours you spend in your whole career. And so thinking wisely about where those hours are spent and what causes those companies are supporting is particularly important. And yeah, it's, yeah, I think that's perhaps uh, what I think the takeaway from that. And I guess a final question that uh, from me, Carl, even though there's probably thousands of questions we can dive into is this question of where should the power lie? I think it's quite clear uh, from our discussion that democracy from your point of view is, is incredibly important to maintain and that the power should lie with the people. Um, and I just wanted to get, get your final thoughts on where the power should lie and whether the public and private interests should encroach on each other and whether we need that very clear split of the public versus the private interests. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, by, by the, the book and my personal views, I want supportive of, you know, the, the promise of democracy and that is by absolute right then about popular sovereignty and, and uh, ultimate power residing with the people and the continual uh, striving uh, to get that right. And I think that does rely um, on a separation of private and public interests, but also then a cooperation between public and private. I mean, how the world responded to COVID is a good example of this. There was a resurgence of government during COVID because if you think of the kind of fiscal policies that were needed uh, to keep the economy afloat, if you think kind of what was needed in terms of public health response, um, vaccine development, no private corporation could have done those things. Um, it was down to governments, some did it better than others, there were a whole lot of mistakes made along the way. It was also done in partnership with the private sector, uh, in partnership with the university sector, for example, in terms of uh, vaccine development, vaccine rollout, um, COVID testing and so forth. So, the, the, so this, in a, this whole episode showed the importance of government and the importance in our sense of, of democratic government and the importance of, of good relations between the public uh, sector and the private sector in terms of getting things done. Corporations are very good at a lot of things, innovation, uh, you know, fast development, um, and these kind of implementations. So I think this is a kind of interesting thing not to forget this event of recent history of COVID and what that might mean in terms of, in terms of the relationship between the private uh, public. Meanwhile, you get the prime minister here in Australia saying that it's all can-do capitalism is going to solve all the problems. He's wrong. It's not. It's going to be an effective um, uh, relationship between the public and private sector, but certainly not one where the private sector calls the shots. Um, uh, private organizations are set up through law. They are subservient to the political and, and should remain so. And I think we've kind of lost that balance over recent decades and it's time to restore it. So ultimately what I'm hearing, Carl, it's, it's a divide, but there's also cooperation within this that is important and you you outlined COVID and whatnot, where we saw that it is important to cooperate and it's not just one or the other. And maybe this is too late in the conversation to put this out, but I'm just gonna throw it in there because I remembered a concept I learned in one of my classes on urban development and politics. And it was Harvey et al's concept of entrepreneurialism versus managerialism. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm connecting that back to like managerialism being like public and government control versus entrepreneurialism being more private business control. And what I'm hearing is you think there needs to be a divide, but some kind of balance between the two rather than going to one extreme or the other extreme. Yeah, I think that's pretty much right. I mean, to answer that quickly, given time, and I think what we've seen, I mean, kind of in my lifetime, really, in the in the, in the, the time of neoliberalism, um, what we've seen is the increasing growth of the private sector, the growth of the corporation as the de facto model for getting things done, and a push that's gone way too far in terms of the domination of uh, corporations over society. That's not saying we shouldn't have corporations or saying that, you know, uh, anything like that, but but things have just got way out of balance. Um, uh, and, and, and really, I, I hope uh, this is something that, you know, that we can continue to talk about. And it's not debate enough, getting it back on the table, not coming up with utopias, but creating debate that allows uh, for change to happen, um, of which, I would hope our discussion here too will be a small part. Well, I think that is a nice way to wrap up the conversation, Carl. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, it was a pleasure to talk about the book. And um, I, I suppose to ask any final words about or any, if you would like to put the plug the book where the people can find it, if they're oh, interested yeah. in posting it. <laughs> um, uh, the book's called World um, Capitalism. You can buy it through the usual sources. Um, if you are using an online site, it's probably best to buy it either from independent bookshop or directly from the publisher at Bristol University Press. Uh, large online platforms um, that use um, uh, unfair labor practices in warehouses, I would advise you not to buy it from one of those places. <laughs> That's a great way to wrap up. Well, thank you very much, Carl, um, and appreciate you coming on. Entirely my pleasure, Xavier and Shash. Thanks very much for having me.